When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Welcome to Lit Up. On this week's podcast, I have the Australian icon, journalist Kerry O'Brien. I grew up watching Kerry on the television every week on various shows from Late Line to Four Corners. He's one of those journalists that you grow up um, not realising how important they'll be on your life until, yeah, you're an adult. So for many of our American listeners, you'll still get so much out of this episode. Kerry was born the day after the first American occupying troops landed near Tokyo in August 1945. His life has spanned the post-war era through the nuclear and the digital age. It's been a remarkable time of dynamic change and it's all captured in his 850-page memoir. Now, when I say 850 pages, when it came in the mail, I was completely daunted and I thought that is a, you know, doorstopper. However, I couldn't tell you how quickly I whizzed through it. Kerry has interviewed everyone from Barack Obama, David Bowie, Nelson Mandela, Margaret Thatcher, you name it. And the book, as you'll hear with Kerry too, is incredibly insightful. It's like a history of the second half of the 20th century from an Australian perspective. I have perhaps Australia's most beloved journalist with me today, Kerry O'Brien. I've grown up watching you on the screen probing politicians and world leaders, celebrities and the like. So it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Angela. Now, I've read this tome, which of yours, it's about 850 pages, but I just roared through it. And there are a few things that I think we have in common. The biggest one, well, not the biggest, but one of them was that we both used lemon juice to, (laughs) (laughs) I think everyone can fill in the blanks, to try and lighten our hair. Well, I I, I suspect my experiment was much more short-lived than yours. (laughs) <laughs> because rather than turning, I mean, it was kind of strawberry blonde and instead of turning it blonder so that I might look vaguely uh, acceptable as a surfy, this is back in about 1960, it became more orange, so I very quickly abandoned that one. <laughs> Did some connect, some kind of oxidisation didn't work too well. Mm. So around this time you've said that you kind of were drifting for about three years and I think when we take your career into account, it seems impossible to imagine a period where you didn't have a vision of where you were going. Can you talk about these kind of three years you've mentioned when you were, you know, using lemon juice and trying to be a surfy and maybe how and when you became focused? Well, I, I think um, I was probably immature for my, for my years, uh, my class years, pretty much going all the way through school because I started relatively young anyway and then um, my parents, on advice from the school, decided to merge years two and three, which meant that I became even younger. And uh, and whatever intellectual equipment I might have had to deal with that, I suspect my emotional intelligence wasn't there. And I think when I look back that I was probably immature virtually all the way through my schooling, not 
I mean, all the, all the kids were immature at that age, but I mean immature relative to the other kids in my years. And I think that played some part. So I, I didn't have, um, I was always in trouble. I was a, I was, uh, I went to a Christian brothers school. I was raised Catholic and, um, and it was compounded by the fact that my older brother, who was seven years older than me, had gone to the Christian Brothers Training College in Strathfield in Sydney to become a Christian brother at the age of 14. So, so at the age of seven, not only did I lose my older brother, who, who I think I hero-worshipped as a child, um, but, uh, but when I then went to the Christian Brothers School that I went to in Brisbane, all of the brothers knew about my brother's um, reputation as the top scholar in the school, and he did extraordinarily well through his schooling, and was the great star of the training, training college. And they looked at they they knew of his reputation, and they looked at me, and they quite rightly felt they'd got the short end of the straw. <laughs> so all of those things complicated it, but the fact that it was such a um, such a uh, culture of corporal punishment uh, to make up for the fact that the class sizes were huge. The brothers often were ill-trained, too young, uh, and had had left their homes at the age of 14 and 15, as my brother did, when they were certainly in no position to make a, a, a lifetime decision like that and were frustrated in their own personal lives. So all in all, although I loved the playground and made some extraordinary friends, uh, it was not in uh, scholastically and in terms of my constant clashes with the brothers, that side of it wasn't a happy experience. So by the time I left school, um, my father wanted me to be a lawyer. Uh, the vocational training officer who came to the school to advise us on what we should be uh, told me perhaps I should think about journalism or teaching because I'd done well at English. And that was the extent of my guidance as to what I should do in life. So immature anyway, no real sense of what I wanted to be or do had no real idea of what it involved. What it involved being a journalist, and uh, and and no journalist institution in Brisbane was interested in taking me on as a cadet. So I drifted. I went into the public service. Um, I filed files. I arranged furniture removals. I got on the piss, if I could put it that way, <laughs> uh, a lot, and uh, and drifted. And it was only when I was uh, about twenty that I cracked. Um, some casual weekend work at a television station in Brisbane, Channel 9, uh, working in their newsroom, very small newsroom, and after about six months the cadetship became available and they gave it to me. And my world just opened up at that point. Suddenly I did have a raison d'etre. I did have a direction. I had something to aim at. Obviously you've always been a writer in the journalistic sense, but writing a book... Um, is quite different, I'm assuming. And I'm wondering whether it made you understand the writers that you've interviewed over the years even more. Oh, I certainly understand the process more. <clears throat> I mean, the difference between between my writing experience with books and many of the authors that I've interviewed is that most authors I've interviewed have been for fiction. I mean, I've interviewed people like Bob Woodward and others who've written non-fiction for very specific reasons, but not so much about their writing. Um, I was always very reluctant because I've, I've had a profile as a journalist in Australia. Uh, publishers have been interested for a long time in getting me to write something, most particularly a memoir. And I was never quite convinced about that and always just kept putting the decision off. 
But uh, but when I stepped away from uh, from full time structured work at, at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, um, and uh, and I did separately a a four by one hour series of television interviews with the former Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating, and um, uh, those interviews were extremely well received. I mean, Keating was one of a kind as a politician and communicator. Uh, very entertaining as well as at times quite riveting in his imagery. And that was a very successful series. And although I hadn't thought I would do it when we started, I eventually came to the view that it could make a very good and and useful book. And so in the process of writing the book, uh, not just of those interviews, it, it became a kind of, um, it became in a sense a combined act not with me necessarily as a ghostwriter, but we we produced a book which was as close as Paul Keating was ever going to come to an autobiography, but it was not an unchallenged autobiography. The words were largely his, but I structured a very long series of conversations through his life and tested him at various points and tested his his view of his career and of the history around him and of the people he criticised. So I think it actually... It was it was much more honest than your average autobiography might be, uh, but but at the same time you had the authenticity of his voice in it. Um, so I enjoyed that process, and it really did give me a sense of what it might be like to um, to then write my own memoir. And had I not done the Keating book, I may, may never have done it. I'm thinking of some of the writers you interviewed that were particularly kind of sparky or that riveted you. And I'm wondering if we can jump to the Chilean author, Isabel Allende. Now, can you explain what happened in that interview? And I guess the beauty that it is, is can you talk a bit about the depression she was talking about and why that had come on? Yeah, well... Uh, I'd, I'd always enjoyed her books. I had read her anyway. I mean, I went through a period of reading. It wasn't some neat little box uh, where I suddenly was reading South American writers, but um, but there were several that I enjoyed and she was one. And so when she came to Australia, I was very pleased that she agreed to do an interview. And uh, she had been depressed. She'd been seriously depressed because her daughter had died in a Spanish hospital um, she'd gone in there to be treated for one thing and died of another uh, that may have been related to her treatment. And uh, so she was shattered by that and she did fall into depression. But she uh, she described vividly how the way she took herself out of it was to write this kind of romp, if you like, uh, through the sex shops of uh, of San Francisco where she lived and various... It was like... It was like um, pursuing the topic of pleasure. And so it was like a hedonistic voyage. And uh, and she had some wonderful imagery. And she said there was a period where she had these recurring dreams that all involved Antonio Banderas in some very interesting situations, one of which was in a bath full of custard. Uh, there might have even been some um, some guacamole. I've forgotten. I have the... Well, the, the quote is... The first dream was that I had placed a naked Antonio Banderas on a Mexican tortilla, slathered with guacamole and salsa. Then I rolled him up and ate him. That's great. It's so <laughs> wonderful. And then she dreamt about him again the next night 
And on the third night, her husband was wondering who was going to, what, what the next situation was going to be, but she, she decided that she'd come out of her darkness and, uh, and was ready to write again, but she kind of treated herself to this romp. What, uh, but what a, you know, what a great writer. Well, it seems like there's a thread, particularly with the writers or the creatives that you've interviewed, and it is depression and mm. it is drug and alcohol abuse. and for or, her, or, or self-medication. Yeah, self-medication. And I'm just, you know, then I think of David Bowie, who you had such a, I watched that, your, your interview with him, that, that's so honest and poignant and... Um, I wanted to ask you whether you think he made a comment that toward the end of his life or when you when you were speaking to him that he was closer to the young boy that he had always been and that the process was almost of becoming that young boy again. Mm. Well, it was about it was about returning to who he was. Mm. I think that the authenticity of who and what he was when he was a small boy and perhaps relatively unformed before all of the outside pressures and influences were at work on him and that he'd, he'd worked through a whole lifetime to come back to a point where he felt he was back to being that boy in adult trappings, of course, and, and with, uh, with the well, uh, wellspring of experience and, uh, and I'm sure to a degree wisdom and so on and all the other things from all the scars he'd had in life and so on. But that and I was fascinated by that whole concept that he was actually finding his way back to where it started. Do you feel like that's what we're all trying to do? I, um, it's funny. I mean, I, I think that um, I can only speak for me in the end. And I think that in my life, uh, once I did find out what I thought I really wanted to do as a career... Um, and then started pursuing it, and that world opened up for me. And and then I sort of I kept tumbling from this to that to the other through through print and wire service, and then television, and then various forms of television, commercial and public broadcaster, short form, slightly longer form with daily current affairs, and then long form with with our weekly current affairs program at the ABC called Four Corners, which was a and still is a very significant investigative program on the Australian landscape, much like Frontline in America um, or Panorama at the BBC. Uh, and and so I was so totally engaged by those things that I wasn't actually spending that much time reflecting on who and what I was or what was happening inside me. And, you know, you you meet the woman you fall in love with and you start, you have family and um, and there were there were all of these things which were conspiring, I think, and I'm sure this is true of many others, to to keep us walking or even running down this road or tumbling down the hill and climbing up the other side of the hill and meeting adversity and dealing with the things that life throws up. I don't know uh, how much time you actually have to reflect on who and what you are now as compared to what you were, and I find I am reflecting more on those things now. And um, and I have wondered more about the boy I was. And if you're going to ask me if I am now back close to what I'm actually trying, in a way, to 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 shrug off some of the detritus of my life, and um, and and um, without sounding too self-indulgent, but to actually come back to my own personal roots. And writing this book was a help in that regard. I'm imagining that from what you've seen and witnessed, 
that cynicism is something that could take you over, but is getting back to that childhood self a process of making sure that doesn't happen? I've never really um, had the tendency to be cynical. I think there is a really significant difference between healthy scepticism and Mm. just straight, flat cynicism. And uh, maybe partly those people who do regard themselves as cynics or who are cynics may have been that way through their adult life because of some serious and heavy knocks they had as children that they couldn't quite recover from or deal with or... And uh, some people have had terrible childhoods to try and recover from. Uh, or even the kind of cynicism that you see from a public at large about uh, about the quality and nature of leadership in the democratic world today and the, the disappointments that people generally feel about that, which we all understand and feel ourselves, I suspect, mostly. But... Uh, Reporting politics, particularly, I've always sought to understand not just the process, but the people who are in the process. And I was inside the process myself for a time. And I did work for a former Prime Minister in Gough Whitlam and for another politician named Lionel Bowen, who became a Deputy Prime Minister. And, uh, and I got to know a lot of politicians. And, uh, and I saw all kinds of motivations, but I, I saw a great deal of, of well, I saw a lot of well-motivated people. I mean, the process of the wear and tear of politics, um, that, that's the big question. To what extent are the people's not necessarily idealism, but I, yes, ideals, their, their, their hopes and aspirations, not just for themselves, but for their country. Uh, how those get knocked about by that inevitable wear and tear of the democratic process as people try to come to grips with compromises that take them sometimes into areas they don't want to go. Um, But there is a natural instinct on the part of many people, including many journalists, I think, to respond to this decision or that decision or this particular circumstance with politicians with cynicism. And I think cynicism uh, cynicism is too easy a way out. It's too easy to just fall back on cynicism and make that cynical judgment rather than properly try to come to grips with the complexities and the greys of a situation as well as the black and whites. We'd all love everything to be black and white, but it's not. And I certainly learnt that very early on in journalism. Well, very early on, let's talk about your first assignment for television, which was, I think, the a conference that coincided with International Year of the Woman. That was... Which uh, to me just seems incredible. So, yeah, Matt, talk us through it. You've got your first big assignment. Well, it it was when I went to Four Corners. So by that stage, I think I was 29 and I'd been in journalism for nine years. So I'd done... I'd done my... I did a year or so at Channel 9 in Brisbane. I did another, not quite a year, uh, with a provincial newspaper in Ipswich just outside of Brisbane, which was a wonderful... Uh, training ground for me with shire council meetings and showground meetings and and courts and police and uh, all all the stuff you would imagine from a basic fundamental community and where accuracy was at the core of everything. If you got somebody the spelling of somebody's name wrong, you know that was like a cardinal sin. Uh, and from there back into television briefly, then into wire service with AAP and Reuter, uh, then a newspaper, a tabloid newspaper in Sydney. So there were all of these steps along the way. And then into the ABC for the first time with a program called This Day Tonight. Then I went to Four Corners. Now, Four Corners to me was like the pinnacle. That was that was the great program that I wanted to work for. 
And uh, and I suppose I was a little bit disappointed that the first, because I'd, I uh, came in cold and I hadn't had time to properly think about what first story I might want to do, the, the, the executive producer came to me in desperation and said, Kerry, we've got a hole to fill this week, I'm sorry, would you mind doing the, uh, giving me 15 minutes on the, the women's conference, women's national, the national women's conference in Canberra? Uh, and, uh, and, you know, covering a conference for television over 15 minutes is like, um, uh, would fill anybody with dread because, uh, because talking head alone is not often enough to stimulate and maintain an audience. So it wasn't the fact that it was the International Women's Conference that they said sorry about, I hope. Oh, God, no. No, no, no. (laughs) It was the fact, it was, sorry, mate, this would not be your ideal to start with because it's going to be essentially a talking head program and you've got to to find ways to sustain it for 15 minutes. And rather than thinking about it defensively, um, I knew Liz Reid from a previous interview I'd done with her and she was... She was the dynamic uh, advisor to Gough Whitlam, the Prime Minister, on women's affairs. And the Whitlam government was the first government that took feminism and feminist issues seriously and gender balance seriously. And Liz Reid was absolutely fundamental in breaking a lot of fresh ground on that. And so because of that, I went to her and uh, she gave me some insights to some of the delegates, including a wonderful, wonderful American African-American woman named uh, Flo Kennedy, a terrific feminist and contemporary of Gloria Steinem's and others. And, uh, and she became the centrepiece of my story. And she was so dynamic in what she had to talk about uh, that it was, I, I walked away from the whole thing happy. And I'm talking from, the, from my self-interest here, Angela, <laughs> <laughs> my first story on this program that I'd always wanted to work for. Um, so... Um, uh, she had she had taken on. I've got to be a little bit careful here because it's a while since I've looked at this. I want to get it absolutely right. But she uh, she took the university that she was trying to enter. She was trying to to enter a particular law program at this it university, was, yeah, and it might have been Columbia. Mm. I think it was Columbia, and uh, and she was rejected. And uh, and the question was in her mind: was she rejected because she was black, or was she rejected because she was a female? And uh, essentially, she she won the battle, and was accepted into the program. And uh, and there are many other very colourful stories about Flo Kennedy. But I can remember this: she was speaking at the conference floor, and she uh, she talked about the various circumstances that women had to deal with, in terms of the way men viewed them and how seriously they took them or not. And she explained what she called the testicular approach, mm-hmm. which was, she said, like finding yourself in the dentist chair and just as the dentist picks up the drill, you take your right hand and gently grasp his genitals and his testicles and you say, now we ain't going to hurt each other, are we? (laughs) I loved that part. And I thought that is just the type of woman who would lead a mass urination That's right. on the Harvard lawns yes. because there weren't enough women's toilets, which exactly. I thought we could, st- we, everyone, we could, we could copy flow and do this now when we need more toilets. Well, you know? trying, to come, trying to come to terms with where the feminist movement is now uh, and, and um, the health of, the, of, of the, the strength of the leadership of today's generations of young women. I mean, there are 
some really interesting signs there. And and I mean, I'm not an expert on it, but uh, but it's look to me, it's like any advance in society to correct wrongs. It's not often that you see a breakthrough on something like gender issues and then it's just embraced and accepted and everyone moves on uh, and never never looks back. We all know that that's not the case. And so you might take two steps forward and you might open up the, open up the door and let the sun shine in and then somebody closes the door to a crack again and you've got to start all over again or um, about moving to next levels and so on. So... I think uh, whether it's whether it's about an issue like abortion, whether it's an issue like uh, same-sex marriage, whether it's uh, any number of contentious issues in one part of society or another, you can never take for granted that a gain uh, is set in cement. Never, never can. And generations sometimes change attitudes too. In the book, speaking to that. You mentioned a year that was pivotal, pivotal, and that was 1963. And I'm thinking of um, in terms of the advances we make and go back, like that was the year that um, Martin Luther King did his I Have a Dream speech. It's the year that Kennedy was shot. It was when conscription came in. It's when Betty Friedman wrote The Feminine Mystique. Like it was such a big year. And through reading your entire book, Taking in what happened decades ago and then reflecting on where we are now has been a big part of kind of the revelation of it for me. But I'm wondering in terms of those big issues like race, gender equality, how do you feel having written about them and kind of finding where we are now? Do you feel hopeful? You've always got to feel hopeful, but, but, you know, uh, I mean... Of all the things that have changed, not just over the course of my life, but over the course of, of the history of civilization, the one thing that hasn't really changed is human nature. And so the thing about racism, which has always gripped me, is about its capacity to divide. It's, I mean, at, at the heart of it, of course, is this fundamental unfairness and, and uh, an incapacity by some to see all people is basically the same under the skin, that we all have the same rights uh, to be treated fairly, uh, that, um, that, that one, one colour um, is not inferior to another, that there can never be a justification for treating somebody of one skin colour differently to another, uh, trying to argue that they don't, they, in quotes, don't deserve the same treatment. Uh, one of the great things for me about doing this book was in tracing back my own ancestry. And, uh, and I'd been quite taken in 19, 1970 or 71 when I went to Ellis Springs on what was essentially um, a, a, a junket for my newspaper. I must have pleased the editor because he sent me to Ellis Springs on, a, on a, some sort of travel, um, travel writers uh, conference uh, where I actually wasn't expected to write anything or do anything. Uh, and uh, and so I spent a lot of my time just wandering around the streets of Alice Springs, taking things in and talking uh, with some really interesting and impressive local people and built some insights to the kind of naked racism that I saw 
in Alice Springs. It was there for anyone to see who wanted to look. And I didn't have the time or the scope to do anything about it then, but I always promised myself that I would come back. And I did for Four Corners, and that was my second story after the International Women's Conference. Uh, and it, that, was about the, that was about the death of Paula Sweet, who was an Aboriginal woman living in a de facto relationship with a white male and who had been murdered, beaten up and killed. Uh, and six Abri- the claim was that six to 12 Aboriginal men had beaten her up and raped her. And, uh, and the court initially committed them for trial and they spent something like six months in jail before their case was thrown out. And, uh, and the, at the core uh, was, uh, was the fact that the police, uh, that, that these, the, and it was proven that these men could not possibly have said the things that they had said in their alleged confessions. And in fact, uh, the case was thrown out, it was accepted, that, that they could not have done it and there were all kinds of other circumstances which pointed the finger at the de facto who had a history of beating Paula Sweet up uh, and was far more likely to have committed the crime but he had long since moved on. Paula Sweet, um, dead, uh, never saw justice uh, but it was compounded by the injustice driven by racism of these six Aboriginal men. And uh, and so that's that's a tiny illustration of the of the great sins of the world that have been committed in the name of uh, in the name of uh, of racism and the kind of prejudice and the divisions that have been created in society over it. So how far have we progressed? Uh, I think that's always going to be a battle. Always going to be a battle. And there are otherwise civilized societies who are entirely capable of appalling racism. Um, so I suppose the response always has to be through, through legislation, through leadership that tries to educate people to why racism is, ab- is as abhorrent as it is. It uh, stems mostly or often through ignorance and the ignorance is exploited mm. uh, by those who do want to use race to divide and the cynicism behind that just leaves me speechless, you know, I, I think so abhorrent. We still can't hold our heads up high in Australia about uh, about the history of Indigenous Australia. America can't hold its head up high about uh, about the way non-white people are treated in that country. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I'm I'm just one observer of it. And am I right that your that four corner story you did? prompted a royal commission that then did. didn't happen. Yes. Well, it was the dying it was the dying moments of the Whitlam government and uh, uh, about 3 or 4 weeks after I did that story and they and the and the Whitlam government announced that they would hold a royal commission into relations between police and aboriginals in the Northern Territory. Um, several weeks later Gough Whitlam's the, the Whitlam government was dismissed from office. Um, and um, the request from the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs to the senior legal officer in the department had sat in that officer's in-tray because he was on sick leave and so it hadn't been activated and the incoming government did nothing about it. Ten, ten or more, yeah, but 12 years later, there was another story from Four Corners 
uh, about Aboriginal deaths in custody, which was a pivotal uh, investigation that led to uh, the Black Deaths in Custody Royal Commission, and the which which tackled for the first time properly the issue not just of uh, of, Ab- of Indigenous deaths in custody in jails, but also the hugely disproportionate number of Indigenous Australians who were in jail. Mm. Uh, and that led to a Royal Commission and to a very substantial outcome. But then only two or three years ago, there was another Four Corners investigation, this time involving juvenile detention in the Northern Territory and once again a Royal Commission. So that that kind of makes the case uh, as to how you can never make assumptions that, uh, that once a problem is identified, even with the best will in the world, it's, there's no guarantees it'll be fixed uh, and and if there are tempor- is, if there is temporary progress made, that program that progress has to be utterly protected, and then should just become um, the the foundation for the next level of advance. Is it true that Margaret Thatcher walked out of an interview with you because you were pressing her on race issues? Yes, in particular apartheid in South Africa, and uh, she was uh, she was prime minister. She was visiting Australia. She granted her only interview in Australia to us. And uh, there were two issues that I wanted to focus on were, one, the north-south divide socially and economically that had taken place in Britain under her policies of, um, of if you like, neo, neoliberalism. It became Thatcherism, but it was pursuing the sort of Friedmanite approach. And so there was a new economy developing this in the south of England and there was a prosperity based around that, but the old economy in, uh, in northern England was dying and, uh, and an enormous number of people were out of work and a lot of people were suffering and she was just denying that that was so. Uh, but the second issue, and, and so that became a little bit fractious in the interview because I simply kept quoting the evidence back to her uh, from quite conservative uh, publications like The Economist and others. It was undeniable so she was denying the undeniable. But then when we got on to the fact that through the Commonwealth Heads of Government uh, dialogue that would go on regularly and that it's called Chogham. And so this Chogham process where all of the Prime Ministers and Presidents uh, within the Commonwealth, amongst the Commonwealth nations, I think there are about 25 of them. Uh, from my memory, the only person who was out of step for a push within Chogham to have economic sanctions applied to South Africa until it turned its back on apartheid and dismantled the mechanisms of apartheid. This kind of, again, abhorrent, uh, official um, distinction being drawn between white South Africans uh, and the rest, but particularly black South Africans on the basis of, of inferiority. I mean, it was like it was like a formal doctrine enshrining inferiority between between peoples on the basis of the colour of their skin. And um, and for those who who don't who are too young to know or have forgotten about apartheid, Google it. Go looking and educate or re educate yourself to it because truly to think that humans were capable of that kind of extraordinary official cruelty. But uh, there was Nelson Mandela at that stage, still in prison. And uh, and um, Thatcher was was the holdout on economic sanctions, and she claimed that uh, that she uh, found apartheid abhorrent too, 
but there was just nothing in particular that she was going to do about it uh, from the Commonwealth's perspective. And so um, I pursued that. And in particular, there was a Zulu chieftain named uh, Chief Butalese, uh who um, ran an, organis- uh, an organisation that rivalled the African, uh, the ANC, African National Congress. And uh, they, they were Natal-based. I, I won't go into the detail of it, but, uh, but Thatcher was claiming that Butalese was a kind of role model of, uh, of uh, how black South Africans were able to rule themselves within the apartheid regime, and it was a complete nonsense. And uh, I knew because I'd done the research that she used to quote this specious opinion poll from a South African, a pro-apartheid South African newspaper, which allegedly was the proof to Butalese's popularity, and he was quite a brutal leader. Uh, and when she quoted that, uh, I quoted back the reasons why that was not a believable or credible thing, and it was at that point that she decided to walk out. Is that when you're in the studio, do you think this will be great for the show because everyone wants to see Margaret Thatcher walk out? No, you see, I've never... I mean, people sometimes call those things gotcha moments or they're moments where... where you have this kind of little bit of electricity, bit of extra electricity because somebody has right. walked out on something or somebody's made a grave mistake in the middle of an interview. I never kind of sought those things, no. but, but uh, when, they, when that one happened, I thought, well, that was really silly of her because, yeah. because it showed, I think, that she was rattled. And uh, certainly the thing that was most interesting about that interview to me was the way the British media responded. Uh, there were those like Rupert Murdoch's public AI, I think the, the sun um, belted me around the chops. Uh, but, uh, but there were other newspapers who wrote very substantial pieces pointing out the difference between what they regarded as a really straightforward, honest interview, which tried to keep Margaret Thatcher honest, and they compared that unfavourably with, uh, with the kinds of interviews that she was getting back in Britain where she was not being kept honest and where uh, their suggestions were that, that, that journalists charged with those kinds of jobs were either sycophantic or intimidated or both. And I had, a, I had a huge number of letters from complete strangers in England because the interview was large swags of it, parts of it were replayed in England. I had an enormous number of letters. I've still got them there with the ink fading from people who actually took the trouble to sit down and write to this complete stranger on the other side of the world to thank me for asking questions that British journalists were not prepared to ask. Uh, Very telling, I thought. I think we're in that period now where we need journalists to interrogate. I mean, we always need it. Well, look, it it happens and uh, to to various degrees, but I just think that the whole fractured nature of, uh, of journalism today, what has happened the kinds of pressures that are on journalists working in smaller newsrooms uh, or on lower budgets uh, or under threat and as they watch their colleagues being redundant and fretting and worrying about, uh, about their own jobs uh, in this age of massive disruption uh, and, uh, and people who are so under-resourced in their newsrooms are forced to just take media handouts from PR firms on behalf of their clients, um, 
run off the run off a copy of the email and basically mark it up as a story and send it out. And um, and that has been happening, not universally, but it has been happening for some time. Uh, a lot of journalists in a lot of different news organisations are under huge pressure to try and maintain the workload that they have and are spending far more time sitting in their newsrooms on the telephone rather than being out and about seeing for themselves what's happening and getting around and talking to people face to face. There are all kinds of ways in which, uh, in which uh, quality journalism is under threat in this day and age and uh, not least, of course, social media and the, the whole confusion about real news and fake news, the capacity to manipulate um, via the internet on various social media platforms. We've, we've seen the uh, great likelihood that, the, so that Russia did interfere in the uh, last presidential election in the United States. Uh, there are all kinds of stories uh, and there is all kinds of evidence of ways in which social media is being dishonestly manipulated. And that's a tough battle for mainstream quality journalists to continue to keep the bastards honest, but also to be able to deliver quality in the face of fakery. One of the lines you say in the book is that so many of the big stories as a journalist come from the very little ones. And unless you're out there, like the the fact that you're in Alice Springs beforehand and yeah. had a curiosity about that and and then probably had people to draw on when you went back mm. and talked to. I did a I was asked by my editor when I was at Channel Seven in Sydney uh, to check out a story that um, that um, uh, farmers running their cattle through dips were using a chemical that was potentially harmful and that might affect Australia's exports to America. Uh, and that was a pretty small beer story. I mean, it was it was not insignificant, but it seemed a fairly straightforward story. But out of that story, I ended up doing a 90-minute documentary about chemical hazards in Australia that had an enormous reaction. This is back in about 1981, maybe 82. And, uh, and just by, I suppose, asking the right questions and not just being prepared to, to, to keep in my mind that this is going to be a two or three or four or five minute story, but looking for the significance of the things I learnt and beginning to understand that this actually opened up a much bigger set of questions and then discovering that there was a, um, a Senate, I think a, a, a Joint House a Committee of Inquiry in the Australian Parliament into chemical hazards and sifting through 3,000 pages of evidence and going out and talking to people and realising just how huge an issue it was and that most Australians were uh, either ignorant of it or blissfully unaware of all of the ramifications, including the undue and unacceptable level of influence that the chemical industry was bringing to bear inside the the, the corridors of power. Uh, and so that's just... And that, that, that had very strong reaction when it went to air and, I, and I've thought more than once since I could go out and do that story again and I suspect I'd be saying the same things. 
So here we go again, you see, you know, um, something that is just fundamentally wrong and harmful uh, to society is uncovered. Questions are asked, uh, conclusions are drawn that this is unacceptable and has to change and then 20 or 30 years later or even 40 years in this case, you find that we haven't learnt. I'm just going to go back to something you met because you mentioned Russia and I'm just thinking of how, you know, countries, humans, we make all these mistakes again and I'm not necessarily saying mistakes in terms of Russia but in terms of reading your book, I was aware that I didn't know as much as I thought I knew about Vietnam, for example, or the beginning of the Cold War. And I thought, I know, I'll, I've got Kerry here. I'll just ask him how the Cold War started. And I thought, well, I will, because he was right there. Well, the Cold War, well, I wasn't right there for the, for the beginning of the Cold War. I was born in 45. <laughs> but, uh, but to me, and, and, and a, a fundamental part of the importance for me in doing that, the thing that I thought might be of most value in doing the book was that my life neatly spanned the whole post-war period. I was born in those few days uh, at the end of the Pacific War when the Japanese had surrendered. They'd thrown in the towel, but they hadn't formally surrendered. That's when I was born. Uh, the two uh, atom bombs had been dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, maybe 12 or 13 days before. So there I was, you know, the kind of complete... Uh, nuclear age baby, post-war baby, and when you when you actually stop and think about the extraordinary range of things that have happened in this period, the the age of computerisation and the digital world, that's when it started, and uh, and but the but the nuclear cloud that we all lived under, and the 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 nature of the Cold War between the Soviet Union and America, primarily. And then each with their with their allies, and that Cold War was uh, was was centred around Europe, but it played out in every other continent of the world, with the possible exception of the Antarctic. Um, but uh, but the, so the Cold War um, just just uh, overshadowed practically everything else uh, in in the geopolitical world, and always there was the threat of the nuclear war. Uh, so people like me who've lived through that um, felt this enormous sense of relief when the Berlin Wall came down, uh, which was which became the great symbol of the Cold War. And uh, so that wall physically came down in the most dramatic kind of way. People were chipping it down. And Gorbachev was opening up uh, the Soviet Union politically and economically, and that was sending huge shockwaves through that empire, the Soviet Empire, which gradually crumbled, and so I was in, I was in Russia in uh, 1991, as uh, as Gorbachev was struggling to survive against the forces of reaction to his reforms, his economic and social reforms, Glasnost and Perestroika, and political reforms. Eight hundred thousand communist apparatchiks lost their jobs under Gorbachev. The self, you know, the the, the level of self interest in that empire was palpable as as different um, strands of the of the um, of the union broke away. Countries like Georgia and uh, Latvia and uh, and all of these other and and um, uh, the Ukraine and all of these other 
Belarus, all of these other satellites to the Soviet Union, all started falling away. And and so I attended a, a press conference that Gorbachev game at the time when his days were clearly numbered and Yeltsin was on the rise and the old guard of the, of the Soviet Union, the, the old guard communists were fighting back and the KGB. And, uh, and then we put this series of programs together for the program I was on at the time called Late Line, which turned out to be absolutely spot on because I interviewed one of, one of the old guard um, politicians, a colonel called Victor Elksness, that they were, they were called the Black Colonels. And it certainly wasn't <coughs> related to the colour of their skin. And he said on that program that if Gorbachev didn't come to heel, and he was their president, that if Gorbachev didn't come to heel, there would be a coup. And eight months later, there was a coup. We just happened to be on air when it happened. And there, you mentioned in the book that there was a Japanese commentator that said to Gorbachev, you know, you bring in democra- democracy and you could be the next one to go because you can then get voted out as if he hadn't thought of that yet. But of course he had and he said that's part of the process. That would I would regard that as a successful sign that democracy was working, he said. That's it. And, that's uh, a leader, so, isn't it? So then being able to do that hour-long interview with Gorbachev, that was a terrific uh, privilege and opportunity for me as it was interviewing Mandela, as it was interviewing Obama. I mean, um, to have those kinds of opportunities is a wonderful thing, really. Well, it was for me. (laughs) Whatever criticism you might legitimately apply to any of them, uh, they were people of vision, they were people of substance, they were people of imagination, they were people of principle, even when those principles were being bent. Uh, And they were amongst the giants, certainly Gorbachev and uh, Mandela, among the giants of their time. I think Obama deserves a special place because he actually managed to be elected as the president of the most powerful country in the world, a country riddled with racism, as their first African-American president, and then to survive for eight years to be re-elected for a second term. And he can genuinely, you know, count some achievements, some failures, but can genuinely count some achievements. So, but but of them all, the giant to me was Mandela. Mm. Well, to that, I've heard you say that what we're missing now, I think worldwide in the in Western democracies, are these leaders that give us hope or that have a vision. And he definitely, if anyone, would you say he was the ultimate leader? Well, the the the, 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 the most impressive thing about uh, about Mandela was that he had served 27 hard years in prison and and he wasn't the kind of political prisoner who was given special privileges. He was breaking rocks alongside other prisoners, other political prisoners, and uh, he had every cause. I mean, he saw himself as a freedom fighter. He saw himself fighting a just cause And, uh, and he had every right, I think, to have been enormously embittered by the fact that he lost 27 of his years, his most fruitful years, breaking rocks in a prison. For him to come out and to to preach reconciliation um, was not just ins- inspirational, it was pivotal to the future course of South Africa 
and avoiding bloodshed on the way to a genuine democracy. South Africa had never had a genuine democracy. It had six million whites, some of whom had the right to vote if they were over 18 or whatever the age was, and there were 20-plus million uh, black South Africans who did not have a right to vote. And uh, and uh, Mandela was most evocative when he talked about what it was like to live in that kind of circumstance. So while many of the other members of the ANC were in fact bitter uh, and, uh, and would have been extremely confrontational in the way they approached government, Mandela was a splendid voice of reason because he did understand that if they wanted to avoid a complete schism in the country and massive bloodshed that would have uh, wrought a toll over generations that they had to walk down a road to genuine reconciliation, and he did. And uh, and interviewing him and talking about those things on the day that he had just moved into the presidential, the official presidential residence uh, in Pretoria, and uh, and to 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 feel the history of the room we sat in waiting for him, the living room there, and the kind of and the the treacheries and the and the misery that had been perpetrated from that room uh, and uh, and reflecting on the fact that where it was official ANC policy that they were so bitter about Pretoria as the symbol of apartheid because it had been the seat of government that they were going to move government to Cape Town. And he said, no, we're not. We are going to stay here with these memories and we're going to confront them because that is our future. That is the only road to our future that we should want. Uh, Now, you know, that was huge leadership on so many fronts. And he was, while we were waiting for him, he was in the next room talking to all of the police chiefs of South Africa, uh, a number of whom would undoubtedly have had blood on their hands from the days of apartheid, and he was saying to them all, you can come with us and you can be a part of the new South Africa but you have to understand and embrace and accept the change and understand what it means, what it genuinely and seriously means about equality. Um, uh, But if you don't feel you can walk down that road with that sentiment, uh, then now is the time to go. So there's been no one like him that I can think of in my lifetime. Gandhi... Not to that degree. Do you think we need a truth and reconciliation commission in Australia, that kind of... In terms of of Indigenous Australia? Yes, in terms of Indigenous Australia, yeah. Wouldn't hurt. It wouldn't hurt. Um, I just... uh, I've had my own education process down the the decades and in travelling back through my own ancestry... um, with them help, some help from some existing research on my own ancestors who were uh, English, Irish and Scottish, a number of whom came as convicts and some who came as free people, but a whole who came between 19, 1791 and, uh, and 1850. The road that they travelled as pioneers through outback New South Wales and Queensland and, uh, and their various interactions with with first Australians and the fact that one of my ancestors at one point had an investment in a slave ship 
which uh, which picked up what they called indentured labour from from um, uh, South Pacific islands and brought them back to Queensland to uh, to work the cane fields, and they were paid they were paid a nominal wage and they were fed, and uh, and technically they were. Well, they weren't just allowed to go home; they were encouraged to go home because what what the people running that trade didn't want was for them to actually stay and settle in Queensland and and quote unquote breed. Uh, and uh, and in the white community, this ancestor of mine was a decent human being, and to all by all accounts, um, he he was. I mean, look, I won't even try and go down there. It'll sound like I'm trying to vindicate what he may or may not have done. But what I what I do walk away from that process with is a much better understanding of the of the interrelationship between white settlers and Indigenous Australians who had been in this country for millions of years. Millions of years. And for whom their existence was was officially ignored. Australia, according to official doctrine, when the colonialists came in, Australia was unsettled. There were no people here. They were invisible. And uh, and truly, um, it's a little bit like those people who still try to look you in the eye and argue that climate change isn't real and certainly try and argue that if there is climate change, it's not man-made. Uh, it's the same for those who try to deny that that uh, a, a significant part of the history of modern Australia was written in blood uh, and that there were massacres and a lot of them, hundreds of them, and some of them would make your skin crawl to read the detail of those massacres and the savagery of those massacres. But the fundamental denial of rights, the fact that uh, for decades in New South Wales, which in the in the pre in the days before Queensland became a state, New South Wales included Queensland. And uh, for decades, Indigenous Australians had no right to give evidence in a court case. Uh, they were regarded as savages, that because they were heathens, quote-unquote, they couldn't swear on a Bible, so therefore their evidence couldn't be counted on. Uh, so just think that what, what the, the difference that one fact makes in in any legal case involving Indigenous Australians and their and the treatment their treatment at the hands, defending themselves from charges that they might have committed atrocities, or trying to bring a case for injustice and for massacres and so on, they had no status. Thinking of the building blocks of a society, and when I mean understanding feminist feminism and women's rights going and doing that work and then coupling that with understanding Indigenous rights and that intersection, which I guess Flo Kennedy was talking about, intersectional feminism and where these two things collide. I know for some women we're like, well, this, if the system's broken, how do we fix it? Um, but we can't dismantle a system either. That's not realistic. But how do you think we move forward? We work with the democracy we have. We try to make it more robust. We try to have journal. We try to keep journalists calling out politicians and mm. trying to bring truth. Well, you, 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 uh, 
you work with the building blocks you have because we're not going to... I mean, one of, one of Australia's great problems, I think, is the difficulty uh, to make any kind of constitutional change. We could be enormously enlightened about, about what something that needs to be done uh, on a particular issue, but it requires constitutional change. And I think uh, I might not be completely updated on my numbers, but I think it was something like there have been eight successful referenda in Australia out of 40-something attempts. It might have been 44 or 48 attempts. So that um, the vast majority, on past performance, the vast majority of attempts to to change the constitutional framework by which we live are doomed to failure because it's not just a majority of a national vote on an issue. Uh, it, there has to be a majority of voters in favour of a, the particular constitutional question that's being asked, but also a majority of states. And, uh, and, and given the kind of fundamental conservatism that many people have uh, or, or bring to bear on change in their lives, if you have a, a contentious referendum issue like becoming a republic and uh, some people don't want to don't want to change from the monarchy that we have now and some people might want a republic but they want model a of the republic and others want model b and if you have enough of the significant even one or two sometimes if you've got a prime minister as john howard was opposed to a referendum and he argues against a referendum then from the power of the office of Prime Minister, that alone is probably enough to sink that referendum. And then if you have a state premier in a particular state or two states or three states that are opposed to it, uh, that resistance is, is enough to mean that that referendum will be dead in the water. So I think that is one of the really fundamental problems that we have, that uh, constitutional change is almost impossible, uh, given the given the... Uh, given the kind of bipartisanship that you need to make it happen. And bipartisanship is, uh, it's not dead in Australia, but it is seriously diminished as a kind of, as a spirit to aspire to in democracy. Uh, the kinds of problems we see with our democracy and the wear and tear on our democracy here and the lack of leadership that we uh, we feel we suffer from in Australia, I don't think is any different to what's happening in Britain, what's happening in uh, the greater part of Europe, what's happening in the United States, and uh, and it is a fundamental malaise. It's been it's been an evolution, uh, and and I think that uh, maybe as part of that evolution, we'll kind of find our way back out of it into something a little bit different. You, you there the makeup of the Australian Parliament now is significantly different to to what it traditionally has been. Uh, in the sense that you are now seeing a significant number of independents, independent members of the House of Representatives, and you've got quite a checkerboard <clears throat> of independents and small party members in the Senate, which is making it increasingly difficult and complex for governments uh, to be able to manage. And if that means, if most of those independents and most of those small parties are actually bringing common sense and principle to bear in their judgments rather than just self-interest uh, or irresponsibility, then 
then I think the, the the two major parties who have made up government in this country since Federation pretty much are going to be forced to to um, to uh, to face up to greater scrutiny, greater debate. Uh, can no longer assume that if they've got the numbers in the parliament, even if it's the bare numbers, but that if they've got the numbers in the parliament, they can carry on as they always have. Uh, and uh, and that may be a better way. I think there's a real big challenge uh, in Australia to both major side, both major parties, to think not just about how they come up with a new clever form of words to to lull those people who feel so um, so poorly served, uh, to kind of settle them down and get them back into the fold. I think they've got another thing coming. Thinking of the idea of getting two people that hated each other to look each other in the eye and work together, it's reminding me of, you spoke to the spy and writer John le Carre and you kind of riffed on that to speak about another incredible woman who I am kind of was ashamed that I hadn't heard of who'd led um, MI5. Mm. And what's her name? Is it Stella Remington. Can you just quickly tell us what the British Secret Service and the Soviet C- Secret Service did as kind of a an example of trying to have goodwill after hating one another? Because maybe but, but, so Parliament is, could yeah. try that. Well, except, I mean, this was the end of the Cold War and, and at some point, uh, whoever his, whoever's inspiration it was, uh, for better or worse, the um, a delegation of British spies went across to Moscow to meet a delegation of KGB agents. And uh, and Stella Remington, who um, led MI5 in the end, before she retired, and on whom we're told um, the female M in the James Bond movies was was to a degree inspired by. Um, she describes how they sort of sat down across from each other and how the British delegation were fascinated and were sort of feeling their way, but the overwhelming image that she left that day with was the coldness in the eyes of the <laughs> of this dreaded enemy of decades, the KGB. Kerry, we have to wrap up even though I don't want to, but thank you so much. Thank you, Angela. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Kerry O'Brien. Wow. So the big takeaway for me is... I was reminded of how important it is to support journalists, to have time to investigate stories. As Kerry said, the biggest stories often start out with the little ones. And unless writers, journalists have the time and support financially to investigate them, we won't uncover these truths that can be better for all of us and have, you know, that can have implications on the health and well-being of you know, the people in our countries. Um, and especially in this time of fake news, news, don't lose faith, don't become cynical. Uh, we have to be positive and, you know, expect that we can do better. Let us know what you thought of the episode and please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Lit Up Show.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.